uh, Christian, first and foremost, uh, thank you for watching Robin Hood, Things Prince of do. Thieves. That one's a real take one for the team uh, watch, I, I, I think. Although I have to say, I surprisingly enjoyed it a lot more than I expected to. <laughs> I enjoyed it about as much as I expected to. <laughs> <laughs>
I had, yes, he had a cold. He had a cold. Nasty cold. I had aortic aneurysm surgery, uh, and uh, but uh, it was a success, and I'm now growing a tail. So that's like about as serious as a cold, right? Is that Something those are like about that. the same thing? Yes. Is that right? In the same yeah, general okay. ballpark. I want to throw I want to throw myself under the bus here really fast for um, uh, a direct message that I sent to you, Christian, when I invited you on the podcast, and you were like, "Oh, I'm actually getting surgery on my heart next week. Maybe I can do it a few weeks later." And I happened to look up the movies that were coming out within the few weeks you had said you would be able to do it, and one of them was dying young with julia roberts and i sent that to you and i was like this one and then i immediately was like i was like i kind of know christian i don't know him that well it's a pretty serious I, I surgery it, what I the took fuck it, is as, wrong as, with as you ricky intent, as i took it as it was intended i did i did yeah it's too bad the the baboon heart didn't come out in 1991 that the christian slater uh marissa tomei uh magnum opus i was i just gonna say i'll always hold on to that scene in untamed heart where she says you could get a new heart. And he says, but I'm afraid if I have a new heart, I won't love you anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're right. It was Untamed Heart. The Baboon Heart, it was the original title of it. Uh, and the reason I, no. I know that, I don't remember what year it came out, but I interned at the Village Voice film department for a while. And we had to work on the uh, like fall movie preview of all the movies that were coming out. And at the time, it was called The Baboon Heart. Uh, that's, uh, and also dangerous minds was originally called my posse. Don't do homework. No way. No. Yes. Way. Yes. Oh. That was the, that was I the name mean, of the original book that, uh, dangerous minds was based on. And so oh that movie God. will always be my posse. Don't do homework. Uh, so this week's movie of, um, June, 7th, 1991 uh, is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, directed by Kevin Reynolds, starring Kevin Costner. It's their um, second outing together, pre-Waterworld, post-Fandango, which was uh, Costner's breakthrough movie that um, Reynolds cast him in. And uh, it also stars Christian Slater and Alan Rickman and Morgan Freeman. Um, Alan Rickman, pretty unstoppable. Amazing. You can't really beat him. He seems to be the only one who knows how to handle this he material. He seems to know and, what movie he's in the movie and itself. know what level it should be at. Yeah. yeah, he's doing amazing stuff in every scene. The week that this came out, you also have uh, nothing. Nothing else came out this week. The week before, you've got Don't Tell Mom and Jungle Fever, which we covered. And this week alone, it's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And it was the second highest grossing movie of 1991, right underneath Terminator 2, which is insane because it's largely forgotten. <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I think, but didn't it not do like particularly good its first couple weekends? I think it was like... It only it made like twenty five million. I think it was just it was one of those movies where it made over three hundred million dollars. But it felt like one of those movies where nobody liked it, but there was just this sort of inertia that people had to see it because it was like a big movie and you were supposed to go see it. That sounds like a description for every big movie that comes out nowadays. (laughs) Yeah, like Avengers Endgame. Like it was just somehow you were required to see it. I don't really. It feels like a, a real point of demarcation where youth culture was radically different than what was kind of what Hollywood was putting out. I feel like nobody my age gave a shit about this movie. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but well, even, even visually, and we'll get to the hair and everything in a minute, but like it's 1990. I hate to do the Nirvana kind of cut off there, but like there is this sense of like, this looks like white snake does Robin hood often yeah, throughout it. 100%. Right. Like it doesn't. Yes. And like, yes. of course the people who are just about to get turned on to 
I mean, I think people who were turned on to Nirvana were also probably listening to White Snake as well at the same time, maybe. But like, uh, it does seem like it's just part, like just at the tail end of this fad before the next one. Yes, aesthetically. I mean, other than Christian Slater, who's kind of already got the the sort of this greasy right. sort of floppy hair. Uh, everybody else looks like they've just had their hair teased for about 20 minutes before every and, scene. You know, but I will say as somebody who was like, so I was like eight years old when this movie came out. Um, oh, fuck off. <laughs> so, and I'm older than Ricky, so you better strap in, don't buddy. Fucking, at least I remember don't, this. Oh, happening. Don't fucking you throw know? me under the bus. There's a reason that I haven't said my age yet. I knew that was coming. <laughs> but like, I mean, this was big. It was weird because they tried to make it into something. They like Star Wars from like a toys and like a culture perspective. Like I'm looking right now, you know, they in the movie, they build this kind of like, treehouse village in the city that's very much like the Ewok village from Star Wars. Like they they completely made this Ewok yeah. village playset for this movie. There's also like a million different action figures, a catapult, a battering ram. Like so there was a big And yet it's kind of strangely joyless. Like it's not really a movie that kids would enjoy. There's a lot of like just flat out That's what but that's what Uh, I liked about it, I have to say, was that it was kind of joyless. Like I expected this sort of like it meant like overly joyful, a cloying Robin Hood movie. And I thought the last 45 minutes to an hour were that. But the first hour, I thought it kind of looked like shit. And I sort of enjoy I sort of enjoyed that it looked like a big budget exploitation movie in a, in a, in a way. Like the scenes with Alec, Alan Rickman <laughs> and the first scene with Alan Rickman and the, the crystal ball woman, Chrono or whatever her name is, right? What Something is like that? that. Like it's just him in this like <laughs> studio room with some blue smoke. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And then the early stuff with Costner and um and Morgan Freeman. It's just like these two guys in mediocre costumes running through the woods. And there's something like the cameras are all shaking all over yeah. the place and it has a very like first take energy, like a lot of the beginning of the movie. <laughs> I was into that. I was kind of I, w- I was surprised. Costner is one of the he's one of the most interesting guys to me in in my lifetime of sort of above the title Hollywood stars. There's in certain movies he works so well like if you throw him a fastball he will hit it out of the park but if you throw him anything else he just looks he looks like he's never picked up a baseball bat before you know i guess i guess i'm not bull durham in, in my mind because you know something like bull durham you know it's just so right down his alley where he can just kind of be that laconic you know slightly jaded dude but ask him to display any sort of range or genuine emotion. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to watch. Be literally one of history's great swashbuckling action heroes. And he's running into every scene going like, Hey, (laughs) it's also kind of like, like in high school when the jock decides to be in the school play, Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. That is what it's like, and like you do have some kind of emotional connection to him because he's the jock and he's good looking and everything. But it's like you're doing so much work to be like motivated by yes. watching him perform. You know, There's a, like more so than any other actor, Costner gives off the vibe of like I don't know what I'm doing here either, right? Like, <laughs> like I I hate movies, I hate theater, I hate all this froofy crap. But somehow I got here. And now I'm in all. Vibe, now I'm in all these movies. Like that's the vibe. His vibe is like, 
I don't know. What would you do if you were in this movie? <laughs> well, and, and it's like so. And he so often he does it to himself. Like there was that run in the the you know from like ninety to two thousand five where he just consistently would cast himself as like this Christ figure, as this just momentous, <laughs> yes. you know, just incredibly charismatic person that people could not help but follow. And none of it played to his strengths. I mean, you know, Waterworld, The Postman. I mean, The Postman is to me the most egregious. Um, but, you know, it's just I've never seen someone whose image of himself so yeah. mismatched what his actual talents were. Did either of you see his last movie, Let Him Go? No, I didn't. <laughs> it's I didn't him. And, but I have, watched, I have watched some episodes of Yellowstone. It's, it's so. him and Diane Lane and, uh, <clears throat> oh, excuse yeah. me, and Leslie Manville. And it's good. And I think it's actually I think it might be the best performance of his at least his late career. It yeah. is the exact kind of role you want him to play. It's just like um, stoic Gary Cooper like charisma that he rides yeah. off the whole movie. Yeah. And it's perfect. The movie's pretty good. Um, but he is, I, I, when I watched it, I was kind of struck throughout the, throughout its entirety. Like every scene he was in, I was like, God, Kevin Costner is a real movie star. Look at how good he is. Like, <laughs> I you know. sort of, it sounds great. I want to watch you, this right you now. You sort of get it again, you know, like you get where it it's, came from. It's really strange. Everyone. Yeah. I mean, I thought Hatfield, Hatfields and McCoys, he, he was great. Uh, it kind of played to his strengths. Um, I thought, I actually thought he was okay in, uh, what's her, the, the Aaron Sorkin poker movie. Uh, Molly's game. Molly's game, yeah. I thought he was pretty good in that. But uh, anything that like ex make where he's forced to express any emotions like joy and sort of silliness or you know bravado, it's 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 cringe as they. Would I would say. argue that Arnold Schwarzenegger has more range than Kevin Costner. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. has more range. Like even in his heyday, I mean, especially in his heyday, I guess, right? Like, yeah, I mean, if if Arnold Schwarzenegger spoke English as a first language, it wouldn't even be a question. The <laughs> the thing that that held Arnold back for so many years is that everything had to be filtered through these sort of Arnold dialect issues. Chris, can you do you want to do you want to talk about the 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 plot of the movie? The plot of the movie? Well, sure. I mean, it's funny because I was watching the movie and I'm thinking like, oh, it's a Robin Hood story. It's like pretty by the numbers for a Robin Hood story. And then I like went and was reading a lot of Wikipedia and apparently Robin Hood has been the same story since like 1370. So like, I can't really fault it for that, I guess. But yeah, what's the story? Kevin Costner is, you know, Robin of Loxley. He goes off to the Crusades. In this version, he's captured and he's being held as a prisoner for, I think they say years, right? Don't they say? Like six That's years? That's sort of yeah. Yeah. And the first, the very first scene of the movie, you guys were talking about how it's kind of gross and dark is someone having their hand cut off. Like that is, and it's Duncan. Everybody has these really gross sores on their wrists. And Kevin Costner has a big, like, like the beard and hair that someone has when you like open a dungeon, you know, and they're like hanging there and they're a skeleton. Um, that's basically who Kevin Costner is in the opening scene of the movie. And um, this is where he meets Morgan Freeman, who's also supposed to be uh, he's supposed to be executed, actually, right? And Costner saves right, him right, in his yeah. escape and then begins not just Robin's quest to steal from the rich and give to the poor, which, unfortunately, it takes this movie a little too long to get to, I think. It's pretty long. It's a pretty Although long. Although I like, so I, I like so all of the stuff before it actually gets to that. I did recognize, like, dear Lord, like, wh who wants an hour and a half long origin story before what you've signed up for right. shows up? 
So this movie isn't a hundred percent. This isn't a hundred percent true, but it's basically coming off of Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, where it's like you know a big swashbuckling adventure, and the big innovation is to make Robin into a spoiled rich kid who, through circumstance, comes to be you know like a literal social justice warrior. Like he's devotes himself to like toppling the patriarchy and like helping all the less fortunate in his little area of England. And that's that's the thing at the time that was like the big turn in this story. And I mean, this basically was like a gritty reboot of Robin Hood, which we were talking about before. I don't know, Christian, if you can think of like other gritty reboots that predated this, but this is like a pretty big early one, I think. Well, I I mean, I I feel like almost calling it a gritty reboot is giving it too much credit. To me, I would say (laughs) joyless Um, that. That it's not gritty in the sense that like the Dark Knight was gritty, you know, or or you know uh, that this is a really intellectual take. It it followed the same general pattern as a fun movie would follow. I mean, every single box is ticked, you know, in terms of like, oh, here's the here's the delightful little young scamp. Here's the the you know the the guy who we the the jolly man who he has a fight with, and then they become best friends. I mean, it it checked all of the boxes that sort of a fun action movie would have. It just everything had this kind of just dour and slightly joyless vibe to it. Again, other than Alan Rickman, who seems to understand that this is supposed to be a comic book and let's be silly. And the story and the story with it. Well, actually, before we do the story of how Alan Rickman got all of his lines, I did feel like as dour as the movie was, I did feel like it's a better blueprint for how to tell the story of a if you're going to start making all your superheroes and your legendary figures uh woke for a for lack of a better word in your movies i did feel like this was kind of a good blueprint for how you could do that in the sense that yeah it was like i i would say that the azim stuff was slightly learned yes. i mean there was that great i wouldn't say that there was that line towards the end where he talks about people guarding their home is, are worth 10 people 10 soldiers who are working for money and how he had learned that in the crusades you know i mean that's also a vietnam commentary you know it's it's a um there yes the, that i felt like that was dealt with about as effectively as you can in a multi-million dollar giant blockbuster movie. i also didn't feel like and and maybe it was because i um i i got a dog last night and uh it was like uh, all over the place I was today wondering how long it was going to take you to bring up that you got a dog <laughs> 23 last minutes yeah. bitch 23 minutes all right pretty good pretty good honestly that's a lot of restraint that's more than i thought you would um have. and so but i didn't find that the 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 you know quote unquote wokeness uh, was heavy-handed, and I thought that it actually was like woven into the characters quite well, without ever feeling like it was like trying to signal to an audience something. It was just sort of who these characters were and what the movie was. Uh, it wasn't even really about it. It was just like who these characters were, and I kind of I prefer that to what I think you 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 more often get now, which is like you have to make sure that certain things are said so we can put it in the marketing department and it can be put put out there. And the movies feel very heavy handed. I I do wonder, you know, and I as three white dudes talking about this, you're it's obviously a little dicey, but you know, Morgan roll Freeman, them. roll the dice, Christian, you know, roll it, go for it. This is what the show is all about, Christian. Take no, no, no filters, no rules, tough crowd. <laughs> hey you know like if you can't handle it snowflake i don't mean that i don't mean to trigger anyone no um how many movies and i think it's got to be at least five has morgan freeman appeared in where he is the only 
black oh, person yeah. with a speaking role. I would say the first, like the first t- twenty-five many, of many. his films. If you were to look at his IMDb, I'd be willing to. I think that this is weird. Strong, that's a weird path to 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 walk. To He's me. Like, like a, a white person's idea of a black person. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's his job. Is My question that. is, how protective of that? path do you have to be once it's carved out for you right because that's a career that at that point you are probably making more money than any other with the exception of a few other actors a few other african-american actors like in the business so it's like if that's your path and you can see a consistent way to work there you have to be pretty protective of it you know like how protective do you have to be (laughs) oh i was just saying at a certain point you're reading scripts like really there's not any other black characters again <laughs> like what am i doing <laughs> like who who am i helping here and who am i not helping he goes into the meeting knowing he's going to be the only black person there and he's going to be the only black person in the script and he just does some kind of shtick that he's you know like this is what yeah, the do you white think, people seem to want do you think he me, even, you like know? what if he didn't even read the scripts and he went into like the agents or someone's office he's like there's no other black people in this movie right i'm in <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know and he always presents a, a very uh dignified figure it's not like he's you know doing anything m- malign i think mm. it, you know in terms of uh the culture uh, from my vantage point but it is it is just a weird it's a weird career to have to go you know 20 years in just blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster of being like the only black character <laughs> that's strange to me is it 20 years or is it his I mean, I think if we think it's actually his, his, his entire career. Like I initially, when we were talking about this talk to myself, like, oh, it's just, it's just the beginning of his career that it was like this. And then just, it's his whole career. No. I mean, like he's still like, I was thinking of Invictus, right? I mean, that's basically, and he's playing Nelson Mandela. Everybody else in the movie is like a white rugby player, (laughs) except for (laughs) Nelson Mandela, you know, he's, it's still, it's his wheelhouse a hundred percent. Yeah. Million dollar baby or. I mean, Unforgiven, we've just done three Clint Eastwood yeah, movies. Obviously, I'm, Shawshank. Well, Shawshank, right? And then there was even most recently, there was the Ron Shelton movie he made in the retirement home with uh, Rene Russo and like other old people, you know? And then even like the Bucket List and movies movies like that as well. Yeah. Space Cowboys. He's the only black space cowboy. We, this is the fourth Eastwood movie we've brought up <laughs> for Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those guys love each other. Chris, you were you had um, a lot of Robin Hood history that you wanted to bring up while oh I go God. get a beer. Yeah, so um, Ricky, like, feel free to get a beer and edit out all of this when you edit the show. But um, it's interesting you were you were talking about like you know as it is a model for making a like quote unquote woke version of a character, and it is interesting because Robin Hood, I mean, that is what he is, right? I mean, you know, he's literally a social justice warrior. Like he's robbing from the rich and giving to the poor, you know. But there is and there is this weird tension with the character where. Even historically, you know, starting hundreds of years ago, they kind of turned Robin Hood into uh, a nobleman and into a, uh, you know, like in this movie, he's like Robin of Loxley. He's like one of the gentry. Right. But like originally he's supposed to be just like a regular guy. There's this big deal about he's supposed to be a yeoman, which is basically just like somebody with a job, like a potter or somebody like that who like finally snaps and like becomes Robin Hood, you know. But for some reason, so it is unusual with this version of the movie that they've come back around to make it like a story about social justice, because that isn't what it was really about for a very, very long time, even though it's so it is the what the character is. So, yeah, this movie does do a good job of that, of like going back well, to that idea. In that, in that in that sense, it's sort of a symptom of that idea that like, 
you can't accept that things are so bad for somebody else unless it's also unless like someone who is representative of you notices it as well. Right. Right. Like Robin is like, like things have gotten so bad that even, even, even you a wealthy Robin person though, right? has to stand up for the poor. <laughs> well, it's like, of course, somebody like me, I'm getting ground into dust by the heel of the authoritarianism. But Robin, yeah, I, I, I don't want to interrupt the, our history lesson, but, um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolute <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> no, but it does seem like a pretty clear template to make some actual sort of cat class observations you know, it's Robin Hood for fuck's sake, like you said, steal from the rich and yeah. give to the poor. And yet they still have to reinforce, like, but don't worry, he's still a nobleman. You know, he's yeah. he's still oh, yeah. he's still better than us. And you right. know, the fact that he shows up in Sherwood Forest and has met these people for about, you know, a, oh a meal, you know, a, an hour, and he's like, Hey, guess what? I'm gonna lead you. And they're all they like, have- Oh, thank you. They have basically kicked the shit out of him and then very graciously invited him to dinner. And he's like, okay, I'm the boss now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody's just fine with that. It's like, oh, finally, a a nobleman to tell us what to do. And then when the king shows up, when Sean Connery shows up as the king at the end. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Which, like, there's actually a lot to kind of unpack there in terms of what Sean Connery does when he shows up and how that fits in with who Sean Connery was. But there's also, like... Why in this movie do we also do we suddenly care about the king? It, like the whole idea was that he was fighting the people that were in power. Now all of a sudden, the kill for him. Well, see, Ricky, this is one of the <laughs> this is one of the things many historians argue that Robin Hood is essentially not a rebellious figure, but he's reinforcing the mores of society because what is he but chaste and pious and selfless? And so, really, his role is to say like these good people should be in charge of us you know so that's meanwhile Ripley, you got you know? this hard-working sheriff of nottingham busting his ass working his way up the ranks yeah. trying to make something he's of just himself. trying to get him he's just trying to get his you know what i mean exactly thwarted by the aristocracy so what if he has an affair or two you know like let let him do what he wants to do oh, you tell me king john is not doing that or king richard whoever the fuck <laughs> like come on yeah the king shows up simply to kiss Robin Hood's bride to be. It's <laughs> the only reason he shows up. Yeah, but when he does it, it's so pious and beautiful, you know. Um, so there's a scene early, uh, early on in the movie where we meet Mary Elizabeth Mastriano Mastriano for the first time, and uh, this is the Never love interest for the love interest for Robin, and also Antonio, I, I believe, is Antonio. <laughs> I, the entire 90s, I was unable to say her name in the first try. <laughs> Thank God the 2000s happened and you didn't have to. Yeah, we dodged a bullet on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God actresses age out of popularity, am I right? <laughs> two, two, in 2002, you actually had a brief moment where you did say, th- oh, you know, who's? I'm so glad she's not popular anymore. I could never <laughs> say her name. And then you're like, um, I have to stop bringing her up because I still can't pronounce it. It's not a good story. <laughs> It, it, and I will say though, in a in a movie of historically bad hair, she has the best set of hair. She has the best head of Ooh. hair of the '90s, I think. So Robin shows up uh, at a castle or something, as Robin Hood does, and um, a very strange moment of the movie happens where a woman steps out who says she she knows Robin, and um, it turn and she's a a woman of a, a, a larger ver- variety, and Robin immediately makes fun of her for right. being fat. I think the idea Why? is you're not. She's not like the fair maid you might expect. It, like visibly recoils at her. Yeah. Yes, and he says sarcastically, "The years have been kind to you." 
It's like literally the first thing he says to her. (laughs) It's extremely mean. Yeah. I mean, and in the movie, there's no one else in the room. There's no audience he's playing to. He's just being a fucking douche, you know? I just want to say, Chris, would it only be excusable to you if he had other people to join in the mockery? Yeah. Look, if you're dunking on some like broad in front of your bros, I mean, that's totally understandable, you know? (laughs) I was saying, you know, there's no, you know, if you follow the logic of the story, He's not trying to bed this woman yet. He's, you know, I guess we we later find out that they have a childhood history, you know, a sort of, she, you know, I burn your hair kind of childhood. I flirt with you by being mean thing. But at the time, it's like there's no idea that he's there to be a romantic interest. He's literally just there because he's vowed to protect her. And then she has the temerity to be unattractive. And he visibly <laughs> recoils at it. Uh, it's very, it's a very weird moment. And then, of course, two minutes later, the real Marion shows up, and we, yeah. as the audience, are meant to be like, "Oh, okay, she's hot." As, as some kind hot. of ninja. <laughs> Why is she some kind of ninja yeah. in this movie? Yeah, because because when that happened, she she attacks him in armor, and we're like, "Oh, Robin Hood is being attacked," and then he pulls her mask up, and it's the hot chick. But. At the time, I was like, oh, this must mean that they're the only two left in the castle and they have nobody to protect them. But no, they, they have they have a, a she's in charge of a lot of people. I don't yeah, know why she crazy. like what was the moment where she like, you know, what? I just I should get into my armor now. <laughs> I should get into my like skin tight ninja plate armor. Because yeah, <laughs> like... I'm pretty sure it took about a half an hour at least to get into armor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know how communication worked in these days. They had arranged like three weeks previously that <laughs> that Robin was going to come over at this specific day, but there's no clock. So it's like after dusk fall, you know, and so they're just sitting around for hours and hours waiting for him to show And then her and, Robin, her and Robin fight. And I think from now on, whenever this happens in one of these movies that, they, that we watch, Chris, it's immediately going into the most 90s thing that happened in the movie from it, which is that he gets kicked in the dick. Oh my God. For, for, for whatever reason that, and I think somebody else brought this up on the show before, but it's almost as if there was, there were like lawyers or standards and practices, people for dick kicks in the (laughs) nineties. And they would just comb over the script and be like, does anyone get kicked in the dick? Okay, it should happen here. They're like, because okay, it's so like, it, it's been like 10 pages and nobody's gotten kicked in the dick, so we really think you need to add that in right now. And then just everything else can say the same, though, but we just need to put that in. Like every movie, for some reason, needed a man going, go! There's two. There's two in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Right in the schmoigles. Yeah. <laughs> And they basically like cut to to cut to the character like going cross-eyed and falling over, you know. Like... <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I remember about uh, uh, about that same scene. And really, the only thing I remember about Mary Elizabeth Mastrananano's character, Master Antonio, Master Antonio, and that Alan Rickman, um, you know, develops a crush or like a fancies her for. I don't remember what reason at all. Why did he? Why does he want I'm to marry? Sorry, her? Ricky. What you? Your word for the feelings of the sheriff of Nottingham for Maid Marian are that he fancies her. Is that what? Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, that seems like that's I that seems fair. He, he could potentially use that. I fan. I fancy you. I fancy <laughs> her very much. Bring her to <laughs> me. I fancy her. <laughs> I I think in the the actual justification in the script is that if he marries a noble woman then he hmm. will be able to sort of uh, get the barons on his side. I hate that I'm actually arguing in defense of this movie, but, but here I 
Uh, no, I, ne- I actually I actually needed that because I I didn't I I wasn't paying attention enough to get that detail. <laughs> the true <laughs> answer is to move the plot forward. But exactly. the right. answer in the story itself is that in order to be taken seriously, to try to get the throne from Richard and to get the barons on the side, he has to marry into noblehood, noble nobility, and uh, and she's the, I guess the I mean, only at the, noble at woman the end, in the like, country. Whether it's justified or not, by the end of the movie, when the wedding is happening in the big climactic action battle, it's totally ridiculous. <laughs> like no matter how much they justified that, in none which, of it which part of it's ridiculous in that you. order. <laughs> The fact that he's having a wedding in the middle of this battle. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like yeah, first yeah, of all, yeah. like, you know what? You can you can let those people rot in a dungeon for another week, have your wedding, like take care of that all, and then you can hang the people. <laughs> like there's no need for those things to happen in the order in which they happen. It's just poor planning. Um I will say in that climactic battle at the end, is much I'm jumping around here, but uh again, I did appreciate that in the midst of what had become kind of children's movie in a lot of ways they hang a child yes yeah hang i was i was thought i was kind of clapping for that i was like that's pretty brave they're literally (laughs) dropping a child in a noose right now he gets saved but there's a solid 40 seconds where he's swinging around from a noose and he's a child i mean that is great really that amount of hanging like there really should have been a scene of his like trachea being crushed and like a horrible rope burn around his neck like if you're if you're the kid was hanging for quite a while i mean because of the hanging the movie got a b for me if the trachea had exploded it would have been an a plus um there's no better distillation than of your sensibility than this whole discussion ricky i think this is like when you said you started applauding when they started when they hung a child i was like oh yeah 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 that sounds like ricky to me that's good did you love that it opened with the, the hand getting cut off too like did that get any points from you no, not really. I, I that that didn't really do it for me. I liked how dark and grimy looking that 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 dungeon was, and that you could kind of barely see uh, a- anybody. I, I I enjoyed that, but I, the hand getting cut off didn't really do it. Yeah, for there's me. a. Lot, I did every- enjoy how every time someone was punched or got an arrow, the sound effects were really oh, gruesome. They were like, really wet, vis- right? <laughs> yeah, the visually, like they cut away because they were trying to get that PG PG thirteen, but um, the sound effects are 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 pretty gruesome. Yeah, and uh, well, one thing I liked about the dungeon sequence was like everybody had sores, which is like that's always a really gross thing that like you know not enough things include. <laughs> so I just love to see that. Yeah, everybody looks really gross in this movie, except for Kevin Costner and his living on a prayer hair. Yes. You know? like, oh, yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about the hair now, Ricky? Is this? Like... I, I'm not sure how you get that amount of body in your hair when <laughs> yeah. you are in a uh, Saracen dungeon for five years. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure how you get that amount of body in your hair without a can of hairspray. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I guarantee you, every time they cut, people ran on the set with aerosol and just were just going to town like it was, you know, decline of Western civilization, the metal years. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I feel like I, I feel like Kevin Costner was like he tr- he tries to come across like he doesn't care about those things, but he so clearly has is like extremely narcissistic and egotistical otherwise like he just wouldn't look like that in every shot beautiful of shots again, of him in the movie that's what right? i'm saying again yeah. he, he 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 thinks he thinks he's this beautiful just adonis of a guy whereas the thing that that really the the, the thing that makes you like him is his sort of 
everyman quality. Where that yeah. shines through, that's when he's effective. And if he's constantly casting himself, you know, even producing these movies and putting himself in these roles where he's just inspires awe from people. Yeah, there's a great I mean, we talked about this before, but there's like um there he has his buns out in this movie, which he also has his buns out in Dances with Wolves. And this he he's it's shot in such a way, and then it cuts to Mastro Antonio, and she's going like, "Oh my god!" Like it's supposed she's to be like, so hot, hot. <laughs> so hot to see that, his pasty that. butt. <laughs> and he looks I so mean, Kevin gross. Costner clearly. Kevin he has Costner a tan line, like you know. Yeah. There's no fucking way Kevin Costner wasn't like didn't show up to set in the morning. And was like Kevin, I got some new pages. What yeah. do you think? And so the thing like, is, you know, she sees my she sees my butt and she's basically faints because it's so fucking hot. <laughs> <laughs> she explodes in orgasmic delight, like physically combusts because she sees my butt rising. And the thing the, is, too, you have the, to shoot the butt from behind the waterfall because otherwise, it's too powerful. It's too much, too much. Yeah, you got it. Just, the, just a hint of the butt. the The idea of the Costner ass is enough to just be like. Is there anybody other than him and Christian Slater who who look like this in the? I mean, Rickman also has a kind of yeah. '80s hair metal oh, look. Oh yeah, no, his reminds, hair is absurd. He looks like, but he looks like like a theater guy from 1990. Like he has this kind of like dark, like kind of oily mullet where it doesn't. It's not like Kevin Costner's like feathered blonde. The sun it's is a always shade of setting. Black that doesn't him. exist in the real world. It's like right. a ridiculously absurd black. Like he should. He looks his. The haircut is the haircut of a guy who's wearing like a white tank top tucked into slacks in some kind of shitty like rehearsal room somewhere in in New York City <laughs> or London, and he's like going over the same thing over and over again you know like that's his mullet he's doing monologues from like from it's 1990 so it's like from sexual perversity in chicago exactly, or something. exactly. <laughs> he's, he's like he's like talking up his performance at a black box theater to all of his friends <laughs> for like three months you know well the thing about rickman uh chris you had told me this earlier today but like he didn't like the script right and he didn't. He thought all of his lines were uh, really boring. So he, the only way he would do it was if he could rewrite a number of his lines. And he brought a comedian in to do it with him. Yeah, and really? they would just go to this Pizza Express in London, and they would just like make up new jokes for the sheriff of Nottingham to say. And like that was the only way he agreed to be in the movie. And there, you know, some of them aren't bad. Like, and also that just sounds like a lot of fun to me. I would love to just fucking sit in a Pizza Express and make dumb Robin Hood jokes with my friends and get paid a huge amount of money to do it it sounds great it frankly sounds amazing but it does feel like he's in a completely he's in a completely different movie though <laughs> yeah. yeah so these are the lines that are like when he's like sees that there's other women in the the castle with him and he's like you 10 30 you 10 45 bring a friend like that's the kind of this is and it, you're right it doesn't really fit in the movie at all but obviously he's having a lot of fun doing it someone must certainly i wasn't watching it but <laughs> do you not even like alan rickman's performance in this movie i, I mean i do i mean i love alan rickman but it, it's you won a bafta for this it's uh, yeah i don't know I, I i just i so dislike the movie as a whole that it's hard for me I don't know. It it feels very easy to like Alan Rickman's performance in this, but I feel like to praise it is to praise the movie, and I refuse to do that. <laughs> you refuse to go that far. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that almost makes it seem like, oh, that makes this movie watchable. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I still think this movie is watchable for about an hour. You see, and yeah. for 
for you, Chris, that's the last exactly. hour. And for me, that's the first hour. <laughs> yeah, so there's this thing. Okay, and me and Ricky completely agree on this. Okay, so one a part of the backstory of this movie is that there were three different Robin Hood movies that from three different studios that were in production, pre-production all at the same time. And it was a race to get it out. Okay, so this movie, they only had 10 weeks to do pre-production and then they had to shoot in the winter and the fall in England and they're shooting outside. And so they're always running short on time. And so basically the first hour of the movie doesn't really look like they got to do a second take like ever and the second yeah. hour of the movie is kind of like a well planned out action sequence of like a real movie and so Ricky of course likes the first hour where it's all like fucked up and weird and everything's like kind of seems like a disaster you know yeah it's falling apart I like that <laughs> yeah I, I agree that it, it kind of feels like a movie that was shot during quarantine this first hour of it <laughs> like, very like rushed how about know? we just have them running across hadrian's wall for 10 minutes for no particular reason and we'll just reuse the same establishing shot a couple times like who cares you know like <laughs> yes, it looks exactly. good right you know yeah it's almost feels like a neil breen movie for the first uh 20 minutes or so but um <laughs> and like you can't even really hear a lot of the dialogue i feel like i mean maybe this is just oh, yeah, amazon I, prime I but like i i mean i watched it on hbo max yeah, HBO and i don't max. know if it's I don't know if it's the sh- the mix on the stream, but I could barely understand what they were saying throughout. I watched the movie with subtitles. Yeah, it's because it was like it was the dialogue was mixed so low, and that I was like yeah. I couldn't follow the plot half the time. And it's Robin Hood; it's been the same story for eight hundred years. And I was like, wait, what's going on now? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it got to the point where it's like if you had asked me before, I don't, I'm not well versed in the Robin Hood lore, but if you had asked me before the movie, I would have been like, yeah, uh, Little John, Friar Tuck. And then if somebody had said Will Scarlet, I'd been like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard that name before. But, you know, when we're watching the movie, when Friar Tuck finally shows up six hours into the movie, <laughs> yeah, right. you're like, oh, fuck, we're still meeting characters. Like, we're still <laughs> meeting people. Are you kidding me? Uh, I have to get to know and like this new guy now. In the second Friar Tuck showed up on screen, I was like, nope, nope. Don't like this guy. Don't <laughs> yeah. like this character Sweet. at all. I actually have kind of a, like... Tried- this so this actor who's playing this guy is named Michael McShane, and he was like a regular on Whose Line Is It Anyway, which I used to be a really big fan of at the time. So yeah, this was one wrong, of the f- nothing, nothing against the actor. I'm sure he's a great dude, but just in the movie. But no, it was funny. It was just one of the first instances <laughs> of my life where I was like, "Oh, that guy from that other thing, like that's cool. He's in this." Like I was like eight years old, you know. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, I'm glad he's getting work. Awesome." Uh, he they also give him a moment at the end of the movie where he does a kind of like thank you for coming and good night. Like I don't remember what he says. Oh but yeah, as everything wrapping up, they're at the wedding. It like suddenly cuts to him and he's like, "What a night! What a day!" <laughs> and then it like cuts to black and you're kind of like, "He's not that important." Like you haven't really established him well enough to make me care about him. We doing don't that. love <laughs> this guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. no. you are about this acting like we love him, kind of like the way they all act like we love, uh, you know, the various characters in the progressive commercials. It's like, I don't like <laughs> these people. Stop, stop telling me that these are beloved characters. They're, They're not. like, so you know how you love Flo? And you're like, no, I don't really love Flo. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Do you guys think that? Um, in some ways, this movie is kind of like it, it made three hundred something million dollars, a huge success. It's coming off of Dances Dances with Wolves. Do you think in some ways this movie is a precursor to Braveheart? Yes. Yes, I, did I think, do. Well, it's got blue painted Scottish warriors in it, right? I mean. Well, 
I was actually going to bring this up that it's like, I don't know if there were movies that came out before Prince of Thieves, but watching it, I really did think like, oh, this hits every single mark of all of those later 90s blockbuster movies. Like the the I'm not saying that it was as funny or less dramatic or better done or worse done, but. In terms of the sort of just bullet points, the 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 sort of walkthrough of the structure of the script, it's like every single point is something you would see later in, uh, you know, Braveheart and The Patriot and, you know, five different uh, five different movies. I can't think of them now, but I, I remember thinking like, oh, is this the first <laughs> one of these? Is this the first movie to do this? And he's like historical dad epics like. Yeah, and just the sort of, you know, the the starting off where the main character is a little bit of a jerk and then they meet a character and then they meet another character and you know, and then there's the then there's the big reversal where things go wrong all of a sudden. And, you know, I, I mean, some of this is just uh playwriting 101, but uh it 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 really did make me think like, "Oh, I think the 90s may have started with this movie." Yeah. That sort yeah. of blockbuster historical epic. It I, maybe there was one before it. Uh like Dances with Wolves is not like that. It's it's a much more knobby story. Like it goes in different places. Whereas this to me is very template, like a template. But I also think it has to do with the kind of money that was going into movies by the time the 90s came and like what came with star power. Just mm. sort of what you could do with an original movie and a, and, a, and a period piece. You could devote $70 million, $80 million, $60 million to, to one of these movies. Like I, I don't think the budget for Prince of Thieves was... Probably more than yeah, I think forty. It, I think it was 50. it was forty eight. I think is what it was. But forty eight in nineteen ninety. Yeah, it's a lot a, of money. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money. And then you get Braveheart a few years later, which I had like probably like a sixty million dollar budget. Um, so you just had this period of time where, like, I think in movie theaters and on video, there was such an audience for it where you could you could make these movies. And then they tried a little bit after mid two thousands, and there's just no audience for them anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I feel like that that era ended and there were still two or three of those movies yet to come out before they hadn't realized like, oh, this is over now. Well, it is interesting, Ricky, because yeah. it's like you were saying, like, I mean, even though these movies kind of follow a template, like a hundred percent, it is interesting to think of them as original stories and dramas like for adults, you know? And that these are the fifty, sixty million dollar budget movies that are making four hundred million dollars, you know, topping the box office for the year. Like, well, I think what's interesting about Robin Hood is that it's for adults, but with like a kid's bend. So like kids could get the action figures, right, could, yeah, kids yeah. could potentially be into it. And but it was still mainly for adults. And the same can be said for something like Robocop a few years before a hard R movie that kids would still go get the toy for. I mean, yeah. I mean, someone could call that subversive and dangerous or something. But I think actually what you're saying is that the, the movies were still made for adults. They just knew that there was this other small uh, pocket where they could make money off of off off of kids. And now they're just only made for kids and adults who are kids. Exactly. That's exactly. a complaint. That's a complaint, like an old person. But. Yeah, movies today. I mean, look, that's this is what with the podcast is for, Ricky. Is for you and me to go. They don't make them like this anymore. <laughs> but see, to, to me though, it's like with this movie, the the the, the humor isn't funny, the action no, isn't no, gripping, no. the the romance isn't romantic. <laughs> it literally everything feels soft and wet and inert to me in this movie. Who's, like it, whose fault? Whose fault do you think that is, Kevin Reynolds or Kevin Costner? Because I have a feeling it's Kevin Costner. 
I mean, certainly you need somebody to hold the center of a movie like that that just has a sort of charismatic gravity. You know, um, I think if you put somebody, I'm just pulling this out of my head, but like somebody with like a natural charisma, more like a George Clooney or, you know, or, you know, or a Mel Gibson, you know, who, you know, for what, however much of a tool he is, has sort of a charismatic gravity that just is yeah. more compelling. Whereas oh my God, Mel Smith has Mel a Smith. weird okay. reverse chemistry. Oh my God. Uh, having, uh, uh, Taron Edgerton. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining right, having right. Mel Gibson starring in this movie. And I, I, that would have been such a better movie. <laughs> I can like, yeah. Can you imagine? Cause he had some, especially at this time, right? Some charisma and he had the same haircuts. So like that was, could be the same. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is about Costner is, is he just has, you know, he has this 38 year old guy energy to him. Like not only does he look 38, he just has an old dude energy. And so him trying to be this sort of like young carefree at the beginning of the movie, like I'm the guy who, you know, it just, it just doesn't play at all. You're a hundred. I've never heard it put better. He has a 38 year old guy energy. Like he a hundred percent, like as a 38 year old guy, like, yes, he definitely does. Like, Oh my God. He's, he, he has the energy of me trying to like start a TikTok. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is so yeah. exciting. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I just very briefly, I would like to bring up the uh, the the work of Michael Wincott, who plays. Yes, uh, thank you, <laughs> Sir Guy of Gisborne or Sir Guy of Gisborne, however it's pronounced. One of the best voices of any actor in the '90s, like just yeah, one of the great '90s villains, I think yeah. too. Yeah, but top-notch uh, vocal quality. You guys were both saying all this, you know, very smart shit about how you like the crazy rough energy of the first hour. But like, you know, just to stick up for the organized fun of the second hour, <laughs> it is a fucking like I would say it, it suddenly you the movie has fascist. Suddenly the movie has fascist has intelligible scenes that have building emotional stakes and that crescendo and it's tied into the music and like things yeah, seem but, to happen in an order that makes sense. And you understand why people are doing the things they're doing, you know? Yeah. But the problem with those scenes is that they're in they intelligibly suck. The other <laughs> scenes that are a disaster and a mess are interesting to watch because they have yes. no sense of what they're doing or where they're going. <laughs> right. And also but those it, scenes you're talking about, those big, those big set piece action scenes have one of my least favorite sort of cliches over and over again, which is dude just running straight into an arrow. <laughs> like <laughs> guy just running, yelling, not protecting himself or whatever, just straight into an arrow. Like, you know, there's that probably happens 80 times in the last hour of this movie of some guy just being like, ah, and then just somebody just like standing in 10 feet in front of him just shoots him dead in the chest. But again, it's all redeemed when they hang a child. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, okay, Christian, we have three questions that uh, we wrap the show up with. Okay. Um, again, as I'm a horrible host, I failed to send you these beforehand. Uh, Chris <laughs> always sends them to guests he books. I, on the other hand, am so uh, scared of uh, bothering the guests that I book <laughs> that I send them no information about the show <laughs> other than the movie and the time. Uh, but so the, we have three questions. And the first question is just simply when I think this one might be the hardest one for you because you didn't like this movie. What was your favorite part? Hmm. Um, boy, that is that genuinely difficult for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I really, I really don't know. I, I didn't, wow. I didn't like any of it. Um, ah, 
that's I don't think I have an answer. I mean, I guess I would say that Alan Rickman sort of uh, wacky farce stuff towards the end of him running up the tower stairs with uh, Marion and and uh, basically the comic uh, attempted rape. Um, <laughs> but uh, that just just his sort of uh, hijinks, hell's a pop and farce uh commedia dell'arte type stuff that would probably be my, my favorite part chris yeah i mean you have to i mean you have to say first of all alan rickman like it's the most famous like lasting thing from this movie is his performance it's so great and over the top and like supposedly the legend of the movie is like the producers slash kevin costner personally kept re-editing the movie to make alan rickman less a big part of it and oh, yeah. kevin costner a uh, bigger part of it because alan rickman's so good in the movie um so like yeah he's fantastic he's fantastic to see what like the fun that he's having in the movie i mean it prefigures something i i i, I think about as like an iconic 90s villain performance which is like gary oldman in the professional like it's gary oldman is doing like a version of this that isn't really as much fun you know like i like much prefer the alan rickman stuff in this when's the last time you watched the professional yeah i see this is the thing is i think the professional is a movie that you like can't really talk about anymore so like because uh, because uh, i watched it last week and it is real difficult to watch <laughs> it's basically a, a romance right between him and natalie portman and that used to be the, the thing you were supposed to like as a movie guy in the 90s was like well you know the french cut has more of a romance between them and like that was a good thing you know but then it but then it turned out that Luc Besson had actually uh uh impregnated and married a 16-year-old girl uh just before making the movie. Cool. Super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like when Husbands and Wives came out and you're like, "Oh, this this uh Woody and uh Julia uh what's her name? Uh Julianne Juliet Lewis. Juliet Lewis subplot like, "Oh, what a funny yeah. little comic uh take this is." And you felt like, "Oh, it's literally happening in it's life really while happening, this movie is yeah. being shot." <laughs> fascinating yes same thing with uh the other woody allen movie crimes and misdemeanors where yeah. he has a a niece that he is obsessed with yes. that he keeps spending time with and he oh, keeps saying God. i just i just i just love teaching her things That's i love like my I love favorite woody movie and too teaching. and i didn't even i, I know me forgot too. about that uh, 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 yes. that's why i say when it comes to woody these days just stick with radio days <laughs> it's like what about love and death? Like love and death is one I think that's kind of exists outside of time, you know. Maybe, except I think I could be wrong, but I think you're going to stumble across at least one scene where he's like pontificating philosophically about morality, yeah, and you don't want that's that. True. That's true. That's 100 true. Yeah. Like, just go with Radio Days. It's just a sweet, nice movie with Jeff Daniels. Sounds great. <laughs> but wait, I want to say one other favorite thing is like this is kind of a to, to have a second one is lame, but like. You know, I, I know the action in this movie is like corny and everything, but for me, the scene of Kevin Costner like swinging through the plate glass window on the torn up banner. I mean, that is one of those iconic things, you know, it is. And it's like just I know it's like from an Errol Flynn movie or whatever, but, you know, it's pretty well done. It's fun to watch. You know, I love it. I love watching. It's just like so straight ahead. Do you know what I mean? There's no spin on it. It's just like that Robin Hood is swinging through a plate glass window, you know, like it's you, great. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to call bullshit on here for a second. For a second. I, could be, I could be wrong, but you have said the words the word swashbuckling multiple times yeah. and you have mentioned errol flynn on multiple yeah. occasions have you actually seen the errol flynn of robin Hood? of course i know he's like okay. i know he's like Fair a enough. fop or whatever or he's like a you know but that was the was the definition of what swashbuckling was is errol flynn and you used to watch that when you were younger 
a kid or something? When I was a kid? Yeah, sure. What, where, what sure, is this leading sure, to? Sure. What is this leading to, Ricky? <laughs> I, what is this sounds, trap you're trying to lay for me? I think like, what he's saying is, it's like, do you really actually like the Errol Flynn like Robin Hood? Shit, or have you right. just sort of adopted the idea that you like it? Yes. No, right, 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 right. Well, no, like... Like, you read some review, and they were like, they referenced no, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. No, I have literally seen these things. And you were like, you know, it's like the Errol Flynn Robin yeah, Hood. I have, of course, I have literally seen Flynn. these things, yes. Like, as a kid, yes. <laughs> Have you not seen these things? Have you not seen these movies? I've never seen them, no. I've never seen the Errol Really? No. I mean, I don't know. No. I guess my mom likes old movies. I used to watch, I used to watch like on the road movies and um, these Errol Flynn Robin Hood movies. Oh, I'm so glad my parents didn't make me watch that shit. Like Gene Kelly, weird Gene Kelly musical comedies or something. You know, I've watched all that stuff. <laughs> Christian, Christian just mumbled to himself, I'm so glad my parents didn't make me watch that shit. <laughs> I'm so glad my parents didn't take an interest in my cultural upbringing whatsoever. My favorite part of the movie is uh, watching Costner just face plant almost every scene he's in. Uh, (laughs) There's something so, and and this is coming from someone who, again, like dances with wolves and uh, enjoys when he's good, but there's something so arrogant about him that when he fails, it's, I kind of applaud and cheer his him him falling on his face i and i enjoyed that aspect like just so many scenes where the accent was like come over here it's so bad so bad bad. (laughs) that's what i'm saying don't do it at all do it or don't do it well the director didn't want him to do it at all but anytime they fought on set apparently kevin would costner kevin costner would start doing it So, I mean, that's one of those weird actor things where it's like, it's your movie, man, whatever, fuck you. And it's like, well, you're the star. You're going to look terrible. You're the one whose people are going to be like watching up on the screen, not me. We're filming this, you know, right? (laughs) Um, And then when Waterworld got taken away from Reynolds, apparently, and it's in the Wikipedia, I think, for Waterworld or in Reynolds' Wikipedia, Reynolds was quoted as saying, Kevin Costner should only work with his favorite director himself. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. Well, he supposedly like, walked away from this movie too, like because of the thing where they kept right. re-editing it and editing out Alan Rickman and he walked away from this movie, you know? It's either Costner is just like a huge asshole or Reynolds is just like always walking away from movies. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this, I'm out. Fuck, who gives a shit? Fuck you. <laughs> uh, so the next question is, um, the podcast is called 30 Years Later. Uh, because we started it uh, last year, uh, all the movies are going to take place in the 90s. Um, so what is the most 90s thing about this movie to you, Christian? Um, well, like I said, you had a real uh, point of departure hairdo-wise when you had like Kevin Costner and christian slater in the same frame because you had like the past and the future right uh right next to each other you know you had the the sort of uh, christian slater greasy uh kind of not grungy necessarily but sort of precursor to grungy hair um so to me i would say that um that you know the the combination of sort of the old hair being left in the in the dust and then the new, the heralding of the new hair to come. Also, Christian Slater is is extreme '90s, but he also was only really famous for like the first five six years of yeah. the '90s. Like yeah. his star had pretty much faded by '97. I think probably due to external circumstances that 
brought like made shooting with him difficult for a little while but his by by 1998 he was making movies called like entropy which were like straight to video movies that i <laughs> I, I, I watched because i was 15 i was like christian slater's cool um <laughs> and then and and then that was it so he was really just this first five years of the 90s and the cusp of the 80s that scene you know where you know will scarlet tells robin that he's his brother and you know and they clearly put Oof. some visine in his eyes before the scene to make it look like he because there's I, I remember reading a review of uh, alec baldwin in uh, prelude to a kiss which is a movie i actually kind of liked when it came out and they said that when alec baldwin cries there's not a wet eye in the house uh and that's sort of you know <laughs> That scene of Christian Slater looking like he's about to cry is like, no, dude, no, no, no one's feeling this. Stop it, stop it. And like that, that scene so like completely comes out of nowhere. It doesn't really add anything to the movie. I was like, why is this happening? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah he's his brother, and then it's like, okay, it's great. it's one of those things. Yeah. It's like, okay, okay, now now we move on. Like you could have found a, a different way to bring these two together, other than the fact that they were they were brothers. Yeah, like I, I, I just could've... could not have mustered a smaller shit about it. <laughs> I just, it. It'd be impossible. The, the shit I gave was microscopic. Um, Chris, what, what was the most nineties thing about the movie? Well, so gotta say Ricky, this fucking Brian Adams song, right? Like Brian Adams, everything I do, I do it for you. Like what a piece of 1990s culture, you know? And it's not just the, the theme, the love theme of this movie, but they have it like woven into the score of the movie. Like anytime there's a romance scene happening, it's like an orchestral arrangement of the song is playing, which I found to be really funny, but that like, was yeah, a very eighties, eighties, nineties thing is to sort of have the theme instrumentally throughout the movie. And then once the credits hit, you knew you were going to hear the big pop version of it. Yeah. Like the electric guitar kicks in and you're like, hell yeah. yeah. You know, I mean that Brian song, Adams. you know, everybody thinks of 1991 as like the year of nevermind or whatever. That song was in fucking escapable. It's in escapable. Oh, yeah. the, the year of ni- 1991 to me, and I was I was young, but I remember 1991 as being the year of this song and You Could Be Mine by Guns yeah. N' Roses for Terminator 2. Those mm-hmm. were the two songs that I remember all summer hanging out with a kid and just like listen, hearing those two songs on MTV all yeah, I remember guy. we went on a road trip this summer with my family and I heard the fucking Brian Adams song so many times that like I actually started off the year not liking it. But then I heard it so many times I was like, you know, there's something to this. I think that I really like this. I have a, a slightly weird relationship with that song and not to be a bummer or whatever. But my uh, my older brother, who has since uh, passed away, it was his wedding song with his wife. And uh, it was like their first dance song. and he my brother was a great dude but kind of a dork he was involved in like uh larping and uh and all that stuff in dungeons and dragons he was very much very much into sort of the robin hood extended universe uh that that sort of stuff and he and his wife they were doing their first dance and that was their song and he was very earnestly singing to her like (laughs) and, and to me being 22 or however old I was, uh, you know, in 1991, however old I was, I was just wincing at it so hard and like trying, like, don't make fun of him. It's his wedding. Don't make fun of him. But, but in my head, I cringe every time I hear that song, not because I'm thinking like, oh, my brother who passed away and I miss him. I just think, oh my God, he looked so fucking dorky. And in a weird way, I love that because it makes him feel real to me. Like the only time that I remember, uh, 
but bo- either of my brothers who both passed away, I it's when 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 something reminds me of how fucking lame they were, all of a sudden they feel very alive to me. <laughs> Sorry, weird yeah, way to end no, the podcast. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, not at all. That was great. I think about this all the time. My sister also passed away, and I often think of dumb lame shit that she liked, and like you yeah. know, like and it makes them yeah. feel more present in your life than if you just think about like the good times and that wonderful time we went to the beach or you, you know what I'm I mean? Like God, Mary used to drink so much. Huh? I'm like Mary used to drink so much Mountain Dew. Like what the fuck? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, that sounds totally normal to me, but that's him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the most 90s part of the movie to you, Ricky? Um, I hate to do uh, a casting choice, though. We've already talked about how it was kind of the precursor for a sort of adventure movie or like period adventure template. Um, but I would say Kevin, Kevin Costner, as silly as that sounds, it does feel like the 90s as much as Bull Durham came out in the eighties, but the nineties were really Kevin Costner's decade, at least the, the beginning of it with like, you know, he had JFK, Robin Hood dances with wolves. Um, and then what was the other movie he had coming out this year as well? Um, there was some, or that he was shooting at the same time perfect as Robin world. Hood. Waterworld. The... Oh, well, Waterworld was later. And then he had a perfect world, which is maybe my favorite Clint Eastwood movie. And I love Clint Eastwood movies. Is that the fourth movies. Clint Eastwood movie we brought up? Fifth. That's the fifth. <laughs> uh, and then, um, but then, yeah, then you have like Wyatt Earp, you have Waterworld, you have The Postman. Mm. He was just like you one of those movies. Yeah, he was one. Of, yeah, exactly. Like when we had talked about Demi Moore, right? It was just sort of like the 90s were her decade. Everybody mm. knew about her and everybody talked about her because it was also a time where like, regular people just talked about movie stars a lot more um and uh and they and they were one of them so i would say like kevin kevin costner to me feels like the most 90s thing uh about this movie um so the last question that we ask is that uh you know it's been 30 years since this movie came out and uh oftentimes over the course of time we grow out of things uh what do you think is something that we've uh that this movie does that we've grown out of um, I don't think you could get away with a comedic rape climax anymore. <laughs> Do you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it would, it, it felt super weird to my 2021 eyes. Like, even though it's a really funny bit of physical comedy, there's a point where Alan Rickman, like, spreads her legs with his feet, like, do you know? Do you know the scene I'm talking yeah, about? No, of or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very acrobatic f- bit of physical comedy, and it's very funny. But it's like, oh, he's doing that to rape her. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit I mean? of acrobatic rape physical comedy. <laughs> yes, you know, yeah. Just... yeah, hard to get away with these days. Um, <laughs> I felt the same way about the kind of like the so Morgan Freeman, as we said, was the only black person in the movie, but like it is brought up in the movie many times. Like the fact that he's black, everybody wants to be like, wait, but you're black, which is like, (laughs) okay. And I understand that's supposed to be a period thing or whatever, but I feel like in these days you would not spend so much time having all the white characters go like, wait, so you're some kind of painted man. What? I mean, honestly, (laughs) in that one small way, I actually feel like movies were more realistic then than they are yes. now. Yes, true. Yeah, it's well, true. It's like absurd. That, it's like absurd that, uh, sometimes when it's not brought up in current movies. Um, I agree that I think it is it is more realistic. There is like a sense when you watch movies now where it's like this very diverse group of people and you're and you can't help but wonder like, how did all these people become friends? Yeah, yeah. And how does this never come up? And yeah. 
Yeah. I, I thought that about Shit's Creek when my wife was watching Shit's Creek, where it's just like this the whole joke is that they're in this like back ass town. It's like, well, it seems to be a pretty progressive, diverse yeah, back ass right? town. Yeah. You know, got the, very you know, gay people and black yeah. people and, and very but, but it's still backwards. You know? Yeah. Right. And the idea that and and maybe maybe they don't, but like when you look at movies from this period of time and then go back even to the seventies, there's this sense of people joking about their differences often that you just can't, I don't know if people don't do it anymore, but like they definitely can't, can't seem to do it in movies anymore where people can have a good time at each other's expense. And it's interesting because the, the whole deal of, and I speak as somebody, I have this children's book I read to my daughter called The Anti-Racist Baby, where it's got a lot of tips about building an anti-racist society. I mean, you're supposed to acknowledge your differences. So, like, why does no fucking movie, why is this something where they've run away from because, so hard? Because the, the, the price of doing it wrong is just too high. And so it's just, it's a cost-benefit analysis. We're like, you know what? It's just better to not go down that road. Like, so let's just have this incredibly diverse cast that for some reason it is never brought up that they're like, it's just, it's just safer to kind of just not address it at all in any sort of comedic way. Because if you fuck it up, the price of that is too high, I think. Right. And if it is brought up, it's addressed in what feels like a Chevrolet commercial or something, right? Where it's like, it's like, I've been fighting for so many years about who I am. (laughs) You're like, okay, enough. Like, that's fine. Okay. Uh, uh, is it my turn? Yeah. What do you think we've outgrown for this Ricky? last one? Yeah. I think that we've grown out of actors not doing accents in any way whatsoever, <laughs> or being like way <laughs> off base. Like you just, no one is a big enough movie star for someone to not step in and be like, you need to be more consistent. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, like yeah. you can't have you. Like you may do a bad accent. Like Ryan Gosling or someone may do like a bad Southern accent, but they will stick to that accent the whole movie. Well, I mean, yeah. think They're about what... like not just the mayor of Easttown that they did these weird Philadelphia accents, but like, uh, you know, the Guy Pierce and, uh, oh my God, I'm fucking forgetting her name. Kate, uh, what's her name? Oh my God, the star of mayor of Easttown. Kate Winslet. Kate, Kate Winslet. Winslet. Okay, I'm going to say it again so you can edit it and I sound smarter. Guy Pierce and Kate Winslet talking to each other, flawlessly sounding about like they're Americans, like no matter what their particular regional accent is. I mean, those are two people that are like pretty big movie stars. Guy Pierce, maybe a little less, but there's not there's not this thing that there's like doing whatever all the time, you know. Yeah, and in this movie, Kevin Kevin Costner and Christian Slater could not be bothered yeah, to maintain literally just any couldn't kind be of consistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I I think that only that's that's only born out of the fact that of like. I'm a movie star. It does not fucking matter. Yeah, who cares? It, people are yeah. people are people are paying to see me, Kevin Costner. They're not paying to see Robin of Loxley, asshole. They're paying to right. see me and my magnificence and my <laughs> and my hot buns. Yeah, they're not paying to see Robin of Loxley. Yeah. They're paying to see Kevin Costner and his locks. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it. Yeah. I think I think I think we did it. I think we just you know knocked the hell out of uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> Christian, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for joining us and uh, for talking to us about the, the movie. pleasure is absolutely mine, gentlemen. Uh, and we'll get you on again if you would like for a movie that you actually like. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that because I, I hate feeling like the guy who just hates everything because I do love a lot of stuff. 